Well, today has become known as Palm Sunday. And this week, there's a special emphasis, uh, obviously leading up to Easter Resurrection Sunday, where people get together. Churches all over the globe are coming together on the Lord's Day, the Worship Day, uh, to think about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we do that same thing. We join together with our brothers and sisters all around the world to think about these great events that marked history and changed the world. And we do that really throughout the whole week. So this Friday, again, is our Good Friday service at 7 p.m. We invite you guys all to join, bring a friend. And then on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, next week, Rick will be preaching again. He's away today, but he does send his love. All this thinking and meditating on the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, it makes us stop and think and ask the question, who is Christ? Who is Christ the King? What do we make of the cross? You know, there's some people who think that the cross of Christ is really just an accident. One big cosmic accident. And the events and Jesus Christ himself, his death and his resurrection, are meant to get us to stop and reflect on these events. And primarily they're seen as events that evoke Pity for Jesus. This great accidental case of mistaken identity, Christ and his cross provides us for an inspirational example simply for us to follow. He stood for love, in the name of love. Morality or helping the weak or even uh, suffering unjustly to the point of death. Is that what uh, this time resurrection time this easter time is for for us to think primarily about pity and sorrow for this man and his misfortunes is that why we gather today to think on palm sunday about these things good friday and then easter i don't think so and from our passage this morning we are reminded that east the easter season is not a time where we simply remember the man and his misfortunes But instead, it's a time for us to really exult in Christ, our Savior, and then rejoice in the salvation that comes through him alone. Exult and rejoice. And really to see our need. So some people, you know, they practice Lent. Um, They think, okay, well, Jesus Christ gave up so much, so therefore I'm going to give up something. I actually think if you're going to celebrate or take the time to think about uh, the crucifixion of Christ, maybe you take the month and think about your greatest need. A need for salvation. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 21, 1-11. It's where our passage this morning is found. This is called the triumphal entry. And we know that it took place a week before Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We also know that the people, when Christ went to Jerusalem, they greeted him with palm branches, which is why it's called Palm Sunday. And this is called the triumphal entry. I'll go ahead and read that now. This is Matthew 21, verses 1-11. to Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. my sippy cup <clears throat> okay so from this morning's passage we ask and answer the question who is christ the king who is christ the king number one he is the prophesied king number two he is the humble king and then number three he is the worshipped king so prophesied king humble king worshipped king if you're taking notes that'll be the outline <clears throat> Let's look first at the prophesied king. Jesus Christ was utterly unique. And I think if you are a follower of Christ, whether nominal or not, you would at the very least be able to agree with that. Jesus Christ was an utterly unique figure. But on Palm Sunday, you know, when we come to read these scripture passages that many of us, frankly, have heard all of our lives, I think we begin to lose sight of the fact of how unique and how special Jesus Christ is. I mean, here we're talking about things like him walking on a road and a donkey. But yet, even in these seemingly insignificant events, it shows actually how special Jesus is. I'll go ahead and read those verses again, 1 to 5. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. <clears throat> so right here, it reads almost, if you have eyes to see, it reads almost like a great, the great and marvelous king is returning to his city to restore his reign. If you have eyes to see, him and his disciples, they go up onto the Mount of Olives. And uh, I've never been to Jerusalem, but uh, you can easily look up pictures from the internet. And if you're, if you're on the Mount of Olives, you basically have this amazing view of all of Jerusalem beautiful view so they're on higher ground right it's almost as if it seems that Jesus the king is scoping out where he knows a certain battle will take place and his disciples are with him unfortunately though he knows that there is mutiny against this true king but then he knows again that his reign and rule will in fact be restored. Not in a way that most people might think. 
but in a way that resembles the kingdom. So he dispatches his disciples. They are to go into the village in front of them, and then they're going to find basically a donkey or the mother of a colt, and then a colt that's never been ridden before. It says there, Matthew's actually the only one who mentions both animals, the donkey, the mother, and then the colt with her, uh, basically to ease the colt's nerves because, once again, it hasn't been broken in. And then he is to, un- they are to untie them and bring them to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and it's amazing there. He just says, if anyone says anything to you, in other words, imagine you are the disciples. You're going to go get the donkeys for Jesus. And Jesus says, if anyone asks you why you need them, the reply is, I, the Lord, need them. And he, the owner, will send them at once. Um, right here, it's, it's different than what goes on earlier in the Gospels. In, earlier in the Gospels, Christ actually veils his identity. You know, he might heal somebody, and then he tells his disciples, don't tell anybody that the Christ did this. It's not my time yet. Here, though, as he moves closer and closer to the cross, it becomes more clear He's happy to go ahead and disclose who he is. He says, tell that person who owns the donkeys that the Lord, Yahweh, needs them. It's incredible here. He's really unveiling for everyone as he moves step by step to the cross who his true identity is. And so here you have, in this seemingly insignificant event, you have Jesus Christ sitting on the Mount of Olives, right? And we know, according to Scripture, the Bible says that Christ is the one through whom everything was made and to whom everything exists. So everything is for Him. He upholds everything with the power of His Word, right? He was there when the stars were flung into place. The universe exists for His glory. He created all things. And then here you have Him sitting with His 12 disciples. Saying, get me my donkeys. Pretty incredible when you think about there is nothing insignificant that has been made when it comes to them serving the great purpose of glorifying and honoring Jesus Christ. Here this seemingly insignificant donkey finds his purpose in serving the Creator. It sort of foretells um, the fact that one day Jesus will in fact reign over everything. And here even, the seemingly insignificant donkey is procured for the great Savior's purposes. Okay, we've got to ask the question, well, what, what in the world is the big deal with donkeys? Because Matthew's given four verses to them. Donkeys! Well, the, the passage answers, gives us the answer there. Why is this significant? Look there in verse 4. Matthew makes it so clear, this took place... To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So there he's not, he's not saying, Zechariah, this, this is a, a prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah is not saying that the Lord Christ is going to ride two animals, as in the donkey and on a colt. It's poetry here. He's just repeating things in different ways. Jesus Christ, the King, will come to Israel riding on a donkey, humble, mounted on this beast of burden. You see, 550 years earlier, God had spoken through the prophet Zechariah, 
And Zechariah had told Israel, salvation will come, the age of salvation will come when this happens. When the king comes riding on that donkey. So let that sink in for a moment. There's so many unique events that are happening here as Christ trods this dusty path. He says that scripture has been fulfilled. So some of the amazing things, God speaks to man. God, who has all divine wisdom and knowledge, reveals himself to man according to his word. And in this case, Zechariah, for example, and then Matthew later on. Not only that, though, the prophet foretells the future 550 years ahead. And then the fulfillment of that prophecy is Jesus Christ. How many times do we actually stop and think about the fact that that there were prophets in those days who spoke the future? It's incredible here. And then that prophecy is fulfilled, Matthew says, in Jesus. Now, the skeptic might say, okay, you know what? No big deal. A man is going to sit on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem. It's not a big deal. It's about donkeys. Well, actually, that's not the point. The point here is that the age of salvation comes through this king arriving in his great city. And then the skeptic might say, okay, well, it's just that one. Just that one prophecy is fulfilled. So maybe we'll just ascribe it to chance. But actually, Matthew says, just Matthew, we're not even looking at the rest of the New Testament. Matthew says that that cannot be understood. It can't be understood to be that way. It's not an isolated incident. So um, turn to Matthew 1, for example. Go ahead and look there. And Matthew, he's just so clear, reminding us again and again and again about the fact that Scripture, prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ. So here we're just looking at Matthew, all right? And we're only going to look at a handful of them. Look at Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Okay, so here he's talking about the conception and then birth of Jesus Christ. All right, listen to what it says. 22 and 23. All this took place, meaning the conception of Christ through a virgin, the birth of Christ through a virgin. All this took place to fulfill, Matthew says, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Right? That's Isaiah 750 years before Christ came. Look at Matthew 2.6. Okay, so the question then is, okay, well, uh, Jesus then is going to be born in Bethlehem. The question is, well, why Bethlehem of all places? Look there in verse 5. In Bethlehem of Judea, here the Magi reporting to Herod that that, uh, the Savior is going to be born there. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. There's another one, Isaiah, oh, sorry, and that's Micah, also 750 years earlier. Here's another one, Matthew 2.15. <clears throat> okay, Herod wants to kill the children, and then Jesus and his family flee to Egypt. Why exactly? Look there in 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. That's 780 years earlier than Christ. 
Um, so it's really clear here that, that Jesus Christ is fulfilling Scripture. And he has this mindset as he himself comes. He understands this about himself. Now, we all should be wondering, okay, well, what exactly are the claims of Christ? Whether we are Christians or not. We should be thinking, who is this Jesus that we've come to learn about? He himself, listen to what he says. This is from Matthew 5, 17 and 19. He speaks to his disciples. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the Old Testament or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot, that's basically the Hebrew script, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Well, the question is, what does he think is going to be accomplished? What is written in the Old Testament that needs to be accomplished? How does the Old Testament lead to Jesus Christ and then is fulfilled in Christ? Luke 24, 44 answers the question. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? That's a way of talking about the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there's something in the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that point to Jesus Christ. And then you've got the prophets, and then you've got the Psalms. All of those things must be fulfilled. And then he says, thus it is written. Well, where is it written? Written in the Old Testament. That the Christ, or the Messiah, the Chosen One, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from <clears throat> Jerusalem. So there the question is, we've got to be asking ourselves, well, how exactly does all of the Old Testament point to and is fulfilled by Jesus Christ? It's incredible. So I tell you this not that you would be amazed that foretelling the future actually happens. Because if God determines that that would happen, then it happens. What is even more amazing is that God actually lets us in on it. What's more amazing than telling the future is the fact that God lets us in on it. So on Palm Sunday, and then this week as we think about the events that led up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, we think about how God in his grace and mercy... Bring salvation to sinners in Jesus. And all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation tells of how God would get the glory through Christ. So there are 66 books in the Bible. 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, written around, let's say, 1500, across the span of 1500 years, by about 40 different authors. And all of them tell one story, which leads up to... The climactic event of Christ glorifying God in his death, in Christ's death, and then in his resurrection. All of it points to Christ. This actually affects our evangelism, doesn't it? Or it should. Um, I remember there, there, there have been times when I think about how, you know, I get, I get worried about how I'm going to share the gospel with some of my friends. I worry about what am I going to say? Because I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to screw it up. What am I going to communicate to them maybe that they haven't heard already if I'm evangelizing, let's say, somebody who grew up in the church? But as I was reflecting on this, 66 different books, 40 different authors, written over 1,500 years, 
all of it pointing to Christ, I was reminded and convicted, why not just let the, the Bible, God's word, speak for itself? So in your evangelism, as you talk to others, are you pointing them to the word of God? Like actually opening it up and saying, well, look what God has said. Look what he's revealed in his holy word. And does that give you confidence? 66 books by God, written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, all pointing to Jesus Christ, the glory of God through Christ. Um, I remember there was a time when, when this finally clicked, that, that it wasn't up to me to convert people, but God did that. And it was my, responsible, my responsibility as one of his children to simply hold out his word to show them, to show others, what he had already said. And I basically came across this through studying the book of Mark inductively. And it hit me just studying the word, just seeing everything that was there. And I thought, gosh, why haven't I been doing this? So do you guys know how to take someone through the Bible to look at the claims of Christ to see what they, to see what he has said about himself? Have you guys investigated that if you are investigating Christianity? What are the claims of Christ according to his word? And if you want to learn more about how you could do that, let's say by looking through the book of Mark, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. And if you are seeking out uh, you know, more meaning for what this Christianity is for, for you, who this Christ is, I'd be happy to go through it with you. It's just six studies called Christianity Explained. You walk through the book of Mark looking at the claims of Christ. What does Jesus Christ say about himself? And we just let the word of God speak. So be encouraged by your in your evangelism as you rely on God's revealed word that points it all to Jesus Christ. Okay, so not only is Jesus Christ the prophesied king, he is also the humble king. And I love how it's depicted. You know, think about setting again. The king and his mighty men are on high ground, scoping out the city, possibly knowing that that's the area where blood will be spilled. Surveying the land, Jesus initiates his plan where finally he will rule and reign and defeat sin, death, and Satan. And he says, I'm going to possess the city and the world for God's glory. Now bring me my donkeys. Isn't that funny? I mean, as I kept on thinking about this time and time again, it would make me laugh out loud because you have the Savior who reigns over everything. And he's saying, bring me my donkeys. This is not an animal fit for a warrior. It's not a white horse that Jesus rides in the end where he comes to judge. Here he goes to the cross, goes to Jerusalem on a donkey, a beast of burden. You know, it's strange for a king who's going to defeat sin and death, death and Satan. But then it becomes clarified more and more. Let's take the historical background, for example. A donkey was actually a peacetime animal. A peacetime animal. And it is an animal that kings rode around during this peacetime. So then you've got to think, okay? Jesus Christ knows everything that's going to happen to him in a few days. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows he's going to be arrested by a group of soldiers carrying clubs and swords. He knows he's going to be beaten and mocked and spat upon and crucified and pierced. Hung on the cross to suffocate and die. And yet he's making peace. 
I mean, think about the humility involved in making peace with those who are going to kill you. <clears throat> you see the character of Christ here. He's meek. He's gentle. He's humble. And it's emphasized by the verse that's quoted and fulfilled in Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Not wrathful, at least here, and riding on his judgment horse because there never is a chance to turn from your sins and believe in Christ. He rides humble and on a donkey. I mean, you think about the, the humility and meekness. Uh, meekness is retaining strength, strength under control. Um, and here, Christ has his power under control, but controlled or utilized for the purpose and glory of the Father in it all. So you think of the incarnation, right? We've been studying the book of Philippians. In, in his incarnation, Christ humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. You see his humility then as he's, as he's mocked and suffers from the Jews, his own people that continue to reject him as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And then here, on his way to the cross, this one story I think makes it really clear. Jesus gets arrested, right? So the, the guards, they come to arrest Jesus. And who draws his sword, ready to go down in a clash, thinking that his master is going to get taken away? Peter does. He slices off the high priest's servant's ear, Malchus. His ear falls off. And then what does Jesus say? How does he respond? He rebukes Peter. And this is what he says. Do you... Do you not think? Okay, so you've got to imagine this. You have his arresters here, clubs, bats, swords, and then you've got his disciples. Fearing for their lives, which is kind of the reaction that Peter takes as he slices off that dude's ear. And he looks at his disciples, and this is what he says, Matthew 26. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then... Should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so. He's saying he could. Peter, stop it. I can, if I wanted to. Call hunt like okay, there would have been like forty thousand to like seventy two thousand angels coming to his rescue. He says, Don't you think that I can do that and the Father would deliver me out of this situation? But yet that isn't what God had planned. He could have called legions of armies to storm the city. Certainly able certainly owned them as the king of the universe. He could have fit himself for war and rode on a stallion, but he didn't. Instead of doing those things, he goes to the cross with a measly 12 men. I mean, a mixed bag, right? You got um, fisherman, tax collector, betrayer. And he goes to the cross on his donkey to wear his crown of thorns and to sit on his throne, the cross. I mean, what kind of king suffers at the hands of those he saves? You see that humility? Christ wins peace for his people by not only, not only being punished by them, but by receiving the punishment for them. That's the peace that he's thinking about, riding on a donkey to the cross. Christ wins peace for his people by not only being punished by them, but by receiving the punishment for them. That's the whole reason why Christ came. He came into the world to save sinners. The Bible says that we are all accountable to this great king. But we yet have rebelled against him in our sin. 
It was rebellion. It was treason. And the punishment for that, rebelling against this great king, saying that we don't want your rule, we actually want our own rule, the punishment for that, the Bible says, is punishment, death, eventually judgment in hell. The good news of the gospel, which is why we gather together to think every single Sunday about the resurrection of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, is that God sent his son to die on the cross in our place. Where we committed those treasonous sins and deserved his wrath, God lays all of that on Christ. Of his own free will, for the joy set before him, he says. And then on the cross as he dies for sins and bears our wrath, we then can be forgiven. Reconciled to this great king. Restored. And having a, a relationship with this great God, just as Danny prayed earlier. So listen to what it says. This is what Isaiah says. Again, 700 years before Christ. He grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is Christ the King. The humble King. Who rules not with weapons of war, but through peace, offering his own blood. He enforces his reign, not with the impulsiveness and fiery furnaces and lion's dens, but with patience and gentleness and humility, meekness. And that character of Christ now marks his people. As we then are to count others more significant than ourselves, as, as Philippians says. Pursue the good of others, spiritual good for others. I mean, he, he, you see how there's, there's ethical um, ramifications there? Because our Savior and our King is like this, we then should be like this. Peace, meekness, humility, and then we are to be marked by the same. Imagine if Christ were a tyrant. What naturally would his people be like if Christ came, not giving forgiveness at all, not giving a chance, but then just demolishing like a tyrant? But our Christ is not like that. You can think of world religions that glorify in such violence. But our king is not like that. He is the humble king who lives for the Father and who dies to save others. And it affects the way we live as we live out pursuing this same Christ. So we follow him. So that's Christ the prophesied king. Christ the humble king. Christ though is not only to be followed. He is to be worshipped. That's point number three. Christ is the prophesied king, the humble king, and then the worshipped king. Look at verses 9 to 11.
And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. During the, the Passover time, hundreds of thousands of Jews would go to Jerusalem, would ascend to Jerusalem for these feasts, for that feast, Passover, and then Pentecost, which was 50 days later. So you can imagine on this road from Mount Olivet to Jerusalem, there are probably lots of people going on this road. So they're, they're, they're making their pilgrimage, their yearly, perhaps, pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover and then Pentecost. And the word Hosanna, it used to mean to the first century people, it used to mean, oh, save. So these people are walking along the road crying out, oh, save. And there's Jesus riding on his, his little donkey with his uh, disciples. And they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, because they were expecting, right? They were expecting one from the kingly line to come and restore, uh, restore Israel in terms of the nation. So they're expecting this. But to them, though, by the first century, it was just used as a general celebration call. This is a festival. They're celebrating here. But yet, they speak of things of which they don't really know. Oh, save, son of David. It's interesting. There's no, there's no hint there that they understand that this, the one who would restore Israel, would have to suffer. Or the restoration happens through suffering. And it's not a restoration of a nation, but a restoration of a people, sinners, Jew and Gentile, as it says in Zechariah. So the people, they spread their cloaks on the ground. They wave palm, they put palm branches on the ground. They greet Christ with these branches. It's reminiscent of Old Testament kings when they came into a city. But yet they don't really know what they say. They don't know the meaning, the significance of the true event. And they're examples of us. They're examples, sorry, they're examples to us of what not to do. They had the forms of worship. They got the words of worship. But at the end of the day, they worship a Jesus of their own understanding. That should teach us right there. They are examples to us of what not to do. How do we apply this to us? This here is a call for us to worship Christ as he himself has revealed himself. Not a God of our own understanding, but God who according to the God according to the Bible. Now we may not initially like what the Bible has to say, but yet even if we're seeking, we gotta know, okay, what does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? What does Christ say about himself? And how is it consistent? Because it is consistent. This is Christ the King who in his humility offers salvation to us now. So he rides on a donkey now. And now is the age of salvation for all of us to return to believe and to repent of our sins and to cling to Christ the Savior, the great, the great King, who offers pardon for sins. But yet there will be a time when that call to salvation will turn into a call of judgment, a summons of judgment. When in Revelation, Jesus comes riding on the white horse to judge. And it's at that time where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, whether they are being saved or whether they are being judged. All creation will give him praise as every knee again bows and acknowledges Christ. 
all of creation. It's why we had Danny read Psalm 148, where the psalmist calls everything in the universe to praise Christ, to glorify God. And this is going, this echoes back to the, the little donkey. Christ, the great creator, procuring even the most seemingly meaningless of animals to exercise its God-given ability to glorify the Son. This is echoed in Luke 19. The same passage, the triumphal entry, uh, Luke records that the Pharisees respond in a, in, a, in a really wicked way. They're doubting. They don't want Jesus to receive this praise. The, the disciples are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is what it says. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out my praise. Christ is the prophesied king, the humble king, and the worshipped king. The question is, have you repented and believed in this great king and acknowledged his true reign? And if not, why not? Repent and believe the gospel. And if you are a believer, this calls us, this, we are reminded again to be using all of our God-given gifts, the life and the energy and the breath we have to glorify him and to exalt his son. This is our humble king who has come to save. And then it affects our evangelism because he will come to judge one day. And that should cause us to reassess what it is that we are actually speaking to our friends. Are we preaching morality? Are we talking about God who grants forgiveness, a right relationship, and who restores sinners to himself even when they were sinners? It says Christ died for us. So this week as we continue to think about the crucifixion and resurrection, pray that the Lord would focus our hearts and our minds on glorifying Christ and seeing him truly as he is. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the great king. We acknowledge your reign and your rule. And Lord, we confess that there are times, oftentimes, when we are not living according to the ways that you desire us to. But Lord, we thank you that we can know forgiveness, full and final and free forgiveness through the cross. And so we don't stand now in judgment or in fear but rejoicing in the cross and the salvation that you have absolutely won for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would reign and that we as your creatures along with the rest of the world would worship you and ascribe you the glory that is your due. In your name we pray.